0: The episode you are about to hear was first recorded on May 1st, 2012.
1: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
0: Welcome to Episode 121 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is autonomy for persons with psychosis-related illnesses and their family caregivers. Autonomy means, generally, the right to make decisions for oneself. Now, in episode 40 of Family Caregivers Unite, my guest is Debbie Sirota. She's the mom of a 24-year-old daughter who lives with paranoid schizophrenia that subjects her to psychotic episodes during which she, the daughter, is unable to make decisions for her own safety. Debbie described such an episode, which involved her daughter setting out in winter temperatures. She lives in Manitoba, which is one of the coldest places, as far as I'm concerned, in Canada and probably North America, to walk barefoot to a neighboring town, uh, which was an urgent and dangerous situation. Now, Debbie explained that she wants her daughter to live as far as possible independently in the community, but always with concern about these psychotic episodes. And what Debbie believes is that her daughter's autonomy should be respected through shared decision-making about disclosing the diagnosis. Debbie believes that the diagnosis should be disclosed always to police and healthcare service providers. But otherwise, her daughter's diagnosis should be disclosed only with great care about what information is shared and with whom it's shared because of potentially harmful consequences for the person, that is her daughter, and the family. Now, to talk about autonomy for persons with psychosis-related illnesses and the family caregivers, my guests today are Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr. Lisa Dope. Uh, Professor Sachs is Professor of Law, Psychology and Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. She's Adjunct Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine and faculty at the New Centre for Psychoanalysis. She has the B.A., Master of Literature, J.D., Ph.D., and Honorary, L.L.D. degrees. She's published four books and many articles about law and mental health. Her most recent book, The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness, describes her struggles with schizophrenia and her managing to craft a good life for herself in the face of a dire prognosis. She's a 2009 recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, which she used to create the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy and Ethics at the University of California. And she lives with her husband in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Lisa Dope, my other guest, holds an MD and is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. She has extensive experience in advocacy and advising legislatures, politicians that is, in North America, Europe and Australia. She's a general practice psychotherapist. She has special experience in addiction medicine and psychotherapy in supporting patients in returning to function. Her medical practice specializes in care and treatment of persons whose high-risk behaviors led to their involvement with the justice system, and her practice provides support for the family caregivers. So, welcome to the show, Ellen and uh, Lisa. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Now, Ellen, let's start with you first, please. Ellen, please tell us more about your background and career. Um, okay, sure,
2: uh, Gordon. I um, I grew up in sunny Florida. I uh, went to college at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and as you said, I went to Oxford and then Yale and then the new Center for Psychoanalysis. So I'm highly credentialed. Um, at the same time, I was uh, given a diagnosis of chronic schizophrenia over 30 years ago. I was given a, quote, very poor and a, quote, grave prognosis which is to say that I was expected to be unable to live independently, let alone to work, and that hasn't turned out uh, to be my life. Um, variety of things came together to help me lead a good life, including intensive psychotherapy, psychopharmacology, once I recognized I needed it, uh, supportive family and friends, and a very accommodating and stimulating workplace. Um, so my book is called, as you said, The Center Cannot Hold My Journey Through Madness, and I try to Educate the reader about what, give the reader a window into the mind of what it's like to be suffering with psychosis. And my goals in writing the book are twofold, to give hope to those who suffer from schizophrenia and understanding to those who don't.
0: Right. Lisa, please tell us more about you and how you became involved with family caregivers, caring for persons whose mental health conditions got them involved in the justice system.
3: Lisa? Um. I graduated, as you said, from the University of Toronto from medicine and then spent most of my career in occupational medicine. And about 10 years ago, I started to work with um, opiate addicts um, in a small community as methadone was just being introduced into Ontario, where I now live. And from there I started to, I was have been always interested both in health outcomes what makes a person healthy what would keep people away from opiates and what does not and the other thing is what tools what support
0: systems are in place for people who do succeed in regaining their
3: abstinence and one of the key f- observations that I made was that it really was Family And I can think of three or four patients that had severe opiate addictions for nine years, but finally came around, and through the patience of their family, they've gone on to lead, gone to university, got degrees, are now productive in the workplace. So that's always been in the back of my mind. Right. But It really came about uh, as I started this new practice of working as a forensic psychotherapist um, when I was looking for what was also uh, the need. I, I went into this area without really knowing too much about it, and um, was working with a wonderful forensic psychiatrist, and he has sort of mentored me. And what and his area of specialty is sex offenders. And one of the things as I became acquainted with that population was what the problems were and what the barriers were in terms of not being able to change their behavior but one of the things that helped people change their behavior was the support from
0: their families. Got it. Great, well now we're going to go into that um, later on as we discuss this. Ellen, to go back to you please, what does autonomy mean in relation to matters of health? And here I'm asking you to perhaps express to us how law sees autonomy uh, but also in any other respect uh, what autonomy means uh, in the kind of situations we're talking about.
2: Um, yes, I mean, I think autonomy is ex- incredibly important. I, my third book was called Refusing Care, Forced Treatment, and the Right to the Mentally Ill, and I talk about the different contexts where we take choice away from people, civil commitment, right to refuse treatment, uh, co- um, other things like that. Um, to me, uh, autonomy means having your choice, choices respected. Um, uh, including delegating choice to someone else as in the shared autonomy context. I think that um, some people think that you have to make your decision for you to be making an autonomous choice. Some people think, and I'm in this group, that you can autonomously delegate to someone else uh, the right to make choices for you. Also, autonomy means recognizing that others may think the choice you're making is unwise, that it's not a good decision, and honoring it anyway, because we think it's important enough for people to have agency, and provided they're not incompetent to understand the issues, to make decisions, even if they're unwise.
0: Right. Lisa, back to you. What are the psychosis-related illnesses and what are their effects? We've so far only mentioned schizophrenia, but presumably there are other illnesses that are psychosis-related, and if so, what are they? Lisa, please. Okay. Uh, Well, just
3: first, uh, psychosis refers to the loss of contact with reality. And oftentimes, initially, can't, people cannot tell the difference between what is real and what is not. And so a first episode can be terrifying, really, to the family first, and as the person suffering is not necessarily aware of what he's suffering. Um, now, when you're looking for a differential diagnosis, uh Because of the psychotic features, one needs to think about whether the person may be bipolar, maybe have a schizoaffective disorder, uh, depression with psychotic features, could be a drug-induced psychosis, could be a brief psychotic disorder, or it could be one of the uh, uh, psychosis associated with a post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Carry on, if you...
3: Uh, well, that's. Uh, and yes. the symptoms can come on very suddenly uh, or they can be, develop gradually. And right. the symptoms may change, vary from person to person and change over time.
2: I, it. I think it's important to interject, though, that people can be psychotic and still capable of making decisions. I mean, imagine someone who believes his spouse is having multiple affairs and there's just no evidence at all that that's the case it's it's he's out of touch with reality but he's perfectly capable of deciding whether he wants you know to uh go to this place for dinner or you know make this contract or write this will if if the delusions don't bear on what, the decision at hand precisely
0: yeah I guess what I would say to you, and we're going to discuss this um, a little later on, is when the decision, as in Debbie's case, or the case of Debbie's daughter, was to start walking out at minus 50 or whatever it was, without any shoes and socks. Um, I'm not going to ask you to answer this at this particular moment. This is just a question to hold over. But there comes a point where somebody might say, look, it's not... It's harmful to you to do that. that. That isn't a value judgment. That's just a matter of, you might call it, risk assessment. And I guess when people have lost, as Lisa says, touch with reality, there may be some decisions, again, this is something we are going to be discussing, where um, that there really isn't um, very much room for doubt about the, the question of harm resulting so we're looking forward to talking with you both about that but it is that time when we have to pay the rent so we have to take a short break this is dr gordon Atherley, and my guests are professor ellen sachs and dr lisa doe you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety channel uh, please stay with us we're definitely coming back
4: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you happy with the management and leadership style of your organization? Do you think it could use some improvement? No matter the level of leadership at your organization, you'll be sure to learn something new when you tune in to Adesis Methodology for Collaborative Management for Exceptional Results with Dr. Ishak Adesis. Through a unique lecture and interview format, we'll bring you ideas, questions, and answers that will help you run any organization, whether for-profit or not. Listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business.
1: Do you feel as if your life is just filled with random awkward moments? Believe me, you're not alone. Tune in every Friday for TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide. With your host, Ashley Iola. Ashley has learned to own her awkward, and she guides you how to do the same. It's awkward, but it can be a lot of fun, too. We'll talk about relationships, sports, food, health, family life, and social life. Each show hopes to make you a bit more in control of your awkward. Tune in to tag the Awkward Girl Guide. Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc g at mymonami.com. That's Doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
0: Welcome back. our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr Lisa Dope. Our topic is autonomy for persons with psychosis-related illnesses and their family caregivers. So now let's talk about autonomy for persons with psychosis related and other mental illnesses. So Lisa, first of all with you, um, in your medical practice, how do questions of autonomy actually arise?
3: Um... They arise uh, because family members are concerned and want to know information. But I'm, I have to say right up front that the whole discussion of autonomy for physicians is really within the framework of the guidelines of the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario and the privacy laws. Uh, we have clear boundaries with regards um, exchanging information or promoting information between the patient and others. And so it's that that there that I try to work a more collaborative approach with family.
0: Right. Ellen please um, what does autonomy mean for family care- caregivers of persons with psychosis-related illnesses? And I'm asking you really from the point of view of how law stands on this and also from the point of view of what you know about the way in which these these matters of autonomy do arise within families. Alan, please.
2: Um, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the legal framework uh, in the United States is um, – competent patients have a right to make their own decisions and prevent their family members even from knowing things, let alone making decisions for them. There are legal mechanisms for family to make decisions like conservatorships and guardianships, or the patient him or herself signing an advance directive saying, I want my family to do this, or I don't want my family to do this, or letting people know what their decision would be if they Weren't incompetent. A substituted judgment decision by, by family members. It's also the case that informally, in other contexts, we let families decide. So I uh, did a study on proxy consent to research and and what the laws were in the various states about whether we could ask family members, say of Alzheimer patients, make decisions to volunteer their family members into research, and if they could, would the with the Alzheimer patient dissent or desire not to be part, would that just trump everything? Um, I think there's a lot to be said for an idea of um, shared autonomy uh, that doesn't require you to jump through legal loopholes just to say I'm the family member and my family member says, uh, you know, uh, this is a range of decisions that he or she would like me to have input on or or give uh, give, uh, a decision for. So there are different levels of roles of of caregivers, uh, that they would be permitted to get information about the patient, that they should be able to attend uh, and give their input on, on what they think should be done, and at a maximum that they should just make the choice for the person, either with the person's consent or at that point without their consent, which is a little bit more problematic. I would also like to say one other thing, which is that, you know, as someone with schizophrenia, um, I feel uh, like uh, there are a chorus of people telling me what I should do and not that many people asking what I would like to do or what I want to do, and it really is important to give sufferers agency, I think, as much as we can. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's really important. Um,
0: Just a quick follow-up to that, Ellen. What I think you're saying is we cannot assume that people in the situation with schizophrenia, for example, are unable to make decisions and always unable to make right. decisions for themselves. Is that, have I understood you right?
2: Yeah, that's part of what I'm saying. I mean, and in yeah. fact, it's black-letter law that even being involuntarily committed to a psych hospital doesn't mean that there's a presumption that you lack capacity. You're presumed to be competent, even if you've been involuntarily committed. And it's certainly possible for someone to be very mentally ill and capable of making important decisions when they can't I think there's no choice but for some other caring person uh, to step in and make the choice Um, right and just one other thing as a personal matter about myself I'm very close to my parents I, I talk to them pretty much every day but I've kept them very distant from my illness life which hurt, hurts them a little and I do it because I was already living independently when I broke down I did not want to go back to being the kid in my family of origin my parents worry a lot you know they can tend to be directive and not supportive and all sorts of reasons that I've kept them at a distance even though I'm very close to them and knowing that they care for me and love me and are, will be there for me is enormously empowering but as far as having them make day-to-day decisions about my care, I, I wouldn't want that.
0: Perfectly fair. Lisa, I'm going over to you now. Well, I, um, I just, just want to say th- uh,
3: just about um, making decisions of care. I mean, I, I maybe step back, a, one step back, because I'm talking a lot about patients, uh, the families being involved with patients' care. And if you can d- d- create a collaborative Method, then it strengthens the connection, um, and and supports the work that I try to do, which is trying to give them different tools such as cognitive behavior therapy, could be meditation, in order to be able to control some of the thoughts in their mind. And these people, because they tend to be isolated, may not do well in groups and need somewhere where they can trust to give them practice in order to uh, be competent in these skills, in order to
2: quieten their delusions or hallucinations. I mean, I I want to make myself clear, which is I think family involvement, if the patient wants it, is a very good thing. I I also have the misfortune of not only having mental illness, but also cancer, and I go to a cancer support group, and a lot of my my group mates, when they go to an important doctor's appointment, and I do this sometimes myself, they bring
0: along their spouse. They bring
2: along their significant other who will take
0: notes. Um, Let let me just for the moment stay with Lisa. What do you actually think about the idea of of shared autonomy in relation to what you were just saying? And that is, it seems to me that you were really advocating, when you said collaboration, you were advocating the idea of shared autonomy. Were you, in fact?
3: Well, uh, I think there are various levels. Um, there's a the level of where I'm working at, which is trying to provide treatment to the individual and also to calm the family's fears because we know a lot about the treatment and what can do well. And certainly family support is one of the factors. But there's other, you know, you have to do have to respect the decision of the patient. And I've had many patients who will do not let me bring in the family members or who do not want to share that. And I have to respect that as well because that is the guidelines. And although it's sort of emotionally against my belief of trying to get somebody better, I have to do that because that is the law and that is the college.
0: Right. Ellen, you were saying that you personally um, don't particularly want, if I hope I'm using the right language, uh, your Parents to be involved in the day-to-day decisions right. of your life, um, no, but I on the I... other hand, um, Ellen, you you are respecting the point that some people may see things differently. Sure. Um, so I wonder if you'd like to say uh, answer this particular question, which is which I I keep encountering, and that is, there's no question that some groups are uncomfortable with the uh, concept of shared autonomy um why are they so uncomfortable you've already given us your opinion about it but what what about these groups why are they so uncomfortable with the idea of shared autonomy i can't speak for the groups
2: but all i can say is i I think the kinds of things that people worry
0: about um are that you know at
2: a time t1 the patient says i want to do this and i authorize my family to make these other decisions and at time t2 they want to make the other decisions and the patient has changed his mind Um, So if you're you're rigorously with shared decision-making saying that in this realm of decisions, the parents or the spouse or whatever can decide, even if the patient changes his mind and even if when he changes his mind or she changes her mind, they're competent, that's, I think, what troubles people, that kind of assault on autonomy. Um, you know, that said, I think it's great when families do get involved and great when patients want their families involved, but I just think that there are all sorts of reasons that they may not want it. I actually have a funny story. I don't know if there's time for this, but I teach advanced directives in my class, and I ask... I told my parents, my students a story about how I was a freshman in college and I was on a diet. And every evening when studying for exams, I'd go to my dorm uh, mate's room and she would give me cookies. And I said to her one day, look, I'm trying to lose weight, so don't give me any cookies. And if I ask for cookies, say no. And if I say I've changed my mind, still say no. And the next night I went up and wanted cookies. And she said no. I said, well, I've changed my mind. She said, well, but you told me I should still say no if you changed your mind. I said, but I changed my mind about that. Let me have cookies. She said, no. I was furious. I tried you know, a mile to a store and got my cookies. But I, so, I mean, it's a kind of telling story. It's, It's small, but it's telling. Yeah,
0: yeah. In other words, am I correct in saying, and this is back to you, Ellen, and also to Lisa, there have to be circumstances where people can change their minds in a shared autonomy relationship. Exactly, exactly. Lisa, do you agree agree with that as well? Yes,
3: I just want to say is that um, in Ontario, we have, I think, maybe perhaps a unique situation where if, Uh, the caregivers uh, do believe that the person, their loved one is at risk, they have the capacity to go to a justice of the peace and fill out a form two, which then gives the police the ability to take the person to the um, emergency room for an examination. And so in that way, Physicians and caregivers don't need to get into a clash about safety issues that the physician may not know about. But the family has the the comfort knowing that there is something they
2: can do if things go to the worst.
0: So, in other words, there's a room there for a second opinion of a kind. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, we can have family alert the police, and the police will come out and make a kind of evaluation and decide whether to take someone to a hospital or whatever. We also have the privacy laws, which I gather you have as well, where you can't just tell the family what's going on unless the patient consents. Precisely.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Now we unfortunately have come up against our time um, limitation for this particular segment, so let's take the break now. Um, this is Doctor. Gordon afternoon, and my guests are Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr. Lisa Dope. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned because we're coming back.
4: Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Stay at 8 a.m. Pacific for The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Bacilli, radio to thrive by.
4: Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You, know, I need someone. Oh! you are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
0: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr. Lisa Dope. Our um, topic is autonomy for persons with psychosis-related illnesses and their family caregivers. Now, electronic health records, which are everywhere um, and are growing and are in- increasingly part of medical life, hospitals and all the rest of it, they more or less are uh, always contain the diagnosis of mental health conditions, including psychosis-related illnesses. Now, once a diagnosis is included in an electronic health record, removing it may be difficult, depends on the jurisdiction, or even impossible. Electronic health records go to many, many people and many, many organizations. So now let's talk about the ways in which the electronic health record can affect autonomy of persons and the sharing of autonomy between family caregivers and the family members they're caring for. Starting with you, Lisa, please. How do you see electronic health records affecting the autonomy of persons, you know, of the persons we're talking about with these psychosis-related illnesses? Lisa?
3: (laughs) Um, well Ontario has poured into uh the healthcare system here 4 billion dollars and we still do not have a competent system and uh personally I've had no experience because this implementation plan has not reached the psychotherapist yet. Um, now so my comments will be general but oftentimes what I've found is that there's partial and inaccurate information that's recorded. In fact, oftentimes people, physicians or other healthcare providers, provide only the barest facts. So you may find shortness of breath, and that's about all, or you'll find depressed looking. But that doesn't give you any details. Uh, so that's one area. But so very sparse information that's usually recorded, unlike Uh, written records, Um, because people are using the computer keyboard, they're often looking down instead of looking up at the patient, which then interferes with the creation of a therapeutic alliance. And We know that therapeutic alliance counts for 30% of success in psychotherapy. And I mean, I just had a patient today that said, you know, the reason I didn't like my last physician was because he didn't—he never looked at me. Um, so that—that's th- a key one for me personally. But there's also lack of confidentiality, and there's lack of accountability of the lack of confidentiality, and that's the one that really concerns me—is this lack of accountability. Um, now. The other issue is that what I would call soft issues, there are many humans behind the records, and they often read the records, and there's a, there is no way really, of tracking where they're taking that information to. Um, and there's a lack of accountability re this human um, human discussion amongst themselves about patients and patients' records.
0: Okay, now I'm going to stop you there because we'll come back to that point in a a different way in a moment. But let me go to Ellen now. How do you see electronic health records affecting the autonomy of persons with the kind of illnesses, mental illnesses, we're talking about? And are you aware of issues in the US concerning this question of privacy and confidentiality of the diagnosis of mental illness? Yeah, no.
2: I mean, I, I don't, I don't really know the literature. I know some conversations in the media and, and so on. I mean, I'm just thinking about it. The, the problem with these records is that the patient may want to keep the information private, and the information being in the record can cause stigma, and stigma can cause physicians and others to overlook important medical difficulties. That's the that's dangerous face of stigma. As an example, in the early 80s, my friends brought me to the ER. I was having short-term memory problems and so on, and the doctors decided I was having an episode and sent me home. A couple of days later, my has sent me back, and eventually they did a spinal tap. I was having a cerebral hemorrhage, which 50% of people die from, but they didn't even work me up because they decided I was just psychotic. I have a friend who was uh, hospitalized about a year or two ago and recently went to the ER with a raging infection. They said to her are you sure you're not just psychotic? It says in your record that you have psychosis. Uh, My friend Steve, who worked at a mental health clinic, one of his patients went for two weeks, went to two or three different doctors complaining of back pain. They all sent him away as having psychosomatic illness. Well, he had a broken back. It was eventually, eventually discovered. So there can be, you know, risk in having that in your records. On the other side, having the information may lead to better treatment. You, you know what works for the person. You know what other people think their di- diagnosis is. The problem of mistakes I think is uh, an important problem uh, uh, that Lisa raises. I had uh, one client um, who uh, stopped talking uh, uh, except to us on the phone about her rights, but she thought the staff and the patients weren't on her side so she was mute. We went a couple of months later. There was going to be a hearing read through her, her report record and type report after type report. It said, Catherine, is very bizarre. She's totally mute. However, we know that she can speak because she's been overheard on the telephone talking about her uh, um, legal rights with imaginary lawyers. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yes. So this is—is is this going to be in the electronic record for the rest of her life that she is talking to imaginary lawyers? So that just right. underscores the, the the point about uh, you know about
0: mistakes, right?
2: Thank you, Lisa. Excuse me, one second. This, qu- account-
0: this question of autonomy again, that is sharing autonomy between the family caregiver and the person. And you both have stressed uh, the, I think, very important observation that there has to be for the person an opportunity to change the mind. But if I'm right, and I might not be, but if I'm right, it seems to me that once this information good or bad is in the electronic health record, the chances of actually changing the mind about the diagnosis or changing the mind about the disclosure of the diagnosis largely disappears. Lisa first, what do you think about that?
3: Oh, I think that's absolutely true and I've seen it many times that, you know, especially in my present practice where many of the patients will go to multiple psychiatrists And you get one psychiatrist making one diagnosis, and it tends to sort of get copied by the next one and the next one and the next one. But when I evaluate it from my own perspective, the person doesn't have the bipolar or doesn't. They just have situational issues which have caused bizarre behavior. So I do have this concern that once it gets on the record, it never leaves the person.
0: I think that's right. Ellen, you
3: know, and that that is not healthy.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, Ellen, you agree with Lisa? I, I hear you agreeing with her. Is there any? Again, I'm speaking to you as a very expert lawyer. Are there any solutions that lie within law, or could be? Uh, encapsulated in law that would address this question of the right to change my mind about what people are saying about me and putting into my records
2: Um, I guess you could pass a law that gives the patient the right to access his or her records and, and make changes, you know. I mean, I don't know the way computers work and stuff like that. It's on these databases all over the country, right? you know, and I don't know how you you get rid of it, but you if you give the patient the authority to do that, then they would find a way, I assume, to do that. Um, so that would just be a matter. And also, I think... Uh, Lisa's point about accountability is really important. When you find that someone has been gossiping about what they read, you know, in, in the electronic record or, you know, your neighbor knows about it and how on earth could the neighbor know, <laughs> people who, who've been found to have breached the confidentiality should be, you know, they should be uh, penalized. They should, they should uh, lose their job. Um, so there's got to be accountability as well. But, but that's
3: what I have found is there isn't any real accountability. So, uh, I've seen
2: there. I've seen stuff here happen where, right. you know, yeah, where the person lost their job for saying something very innocuous to someone else, and she turns him in, and he lost his job.
3: But that's probably more on the rare side than what really Possibly. does happen.
2: Probably, probably,
3: you know, and that's the concern because there's also just the facial expression that people make, or doctors make, or to uh, or healthcare professionals make to one another, which can um, convey um, some very negative points about the person based on the, the. diagnosis, which is in the electronic right. health right. record. Right. So you don't it's, even need to have it overtly being discussed. Right. It's those silent facial expressions.
0: Right. Ellen. any comment about the idea of what Lisa puts so well, the silent facial expressions? Any comment about that? Because it falls into the area of prejudice, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it does. I think it's a potent point. I think that you can see things just by looking in someone's face, and, and they can be things that are hurtful and damaging and uh, it's it's a problem
0: yeah, if I could just make a comment back to both of you, and that is you both mentioned discrimination and stigmatization, but there's another factor as well um, i'm I'm by the way, no innocent bystander in the terms of this debate because um i do I am rather critical of some of these privacy things, but you know um I live in a condominium where um, there are a lot of retired people and um, we had a warning on the desk to say that um, a resident had been robbed because somebody had called her claiming to be a relative and you know the rest of the story. And what the question then arises Well, how do they f- did they know that she was a widow living alone in good right. circumstances and that kind of thing and so there's the right. question of harming people who are vulnerable Yeah, financially, psychologically, and physically. And I don't think – and this is me speaking and giving an opinion and I'm perhaps out of turn, but I think it's something also that should be factored into uh, the situation of people with mental illness because in some respects anyway, they may be unduly vulnerable to the kind of things that we – you've been talking about and that I've just mentioned.
2: Well, a lot of of people in America and the United States say that – you know, mentally ill people are extremely dangerous. It's it's really substance abusers who are dangerous, but uh, um, so you know, again, that information being in your record is pretty problematic. Yeah, well, exactly. let me
3: say something controversial, um, and that is that I'm not sure that I, as a physician, could guarantee a person's record to be confidential.
0: Right, I'm going it. to stop you there Lisa not because I disagree with you but because we do have the break coming up and I'd like us to uh, move into the next one to take up that particular point you're making so let's take the break now this is Dr Gordon Hadrim I guests are Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr Lisa Dope you're listening to uh, Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel stay tuned we're coming back
4: The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to women
1: of all races talk about how they have thought of dating outside of their races shows there's a current trend in interracial relationships that should be explored. Tune in to Interracial Relationships. Where do you stand? What's on your mind? Your host, Flora Pickett Coley, will speak to experts and individuals who are involved in interracial relationships. Our goal is to have open discussions on the issues. Listen every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America
4: Variety Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Help, you, know I need you are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to G at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
0: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr. Lisa Lowe our- topic is autonomy for persons with psychosis related illnesses and their family caregivers so let's talk about the things you both would like to see done to promote autonomy for persons with mental health conditions and the sharing of autonomy with their family caregivers given the reservations or if you like limitations or the concerns that you've both raised in other words i'm putting you in the position of the politician who's going to be faced with the idea of actually um, drafting or causing to be drafted legislation that meets this rather complicated situation so Lisa, first question with you for persons with psychosis related illnesses, what more would you like to see done to create autonomy for the persons? Lisa?
3: Yeah, that's a very challenging question you have put um... I guess I, I would even start just with some general information being out there for people to be aware of what it means, what, what the benefits are, what the risks are, and not forgetting that the whole goal of healthcare, care, um, including the working with the caregiver, is to create a functioning person and so often the goal of why we're doing what we're doing gets lost in the the process. And, um, you know, so there will be benefits and um, negatives, and we need to identify that and, and let people choose, I think, when to do it.
0: Right. Ellen, it's the same question. You know, you're you're. I'm putting you in. You always wanted to be uh, an elected politician, and so I'm <laughs> going to put you in that situation. Um, how would you balance off the concerns that you both expressed by you know- um, enabling? You know, the autonomy of the individual, but also encouraging where it's useful to encourage it, the shared autonomy. Ellen? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think all the
2: reasons I've given earlier and that we've talked about that autonomy is beneficial for patients is important. In terms of this newer concept of the shared autonomy, I think, I think what you want to do is I think you want to educate both parties about why it might be advantageous to have this kind of shared decision making for, for the family member to be there and taping it or asking questions. I think you, know, you would want to elicit concerns of both parties and discuss them. Um, you might want to propose formal laws allowing it to the extent that doctors are afraid that if they do it they'll be in trouble, uh, although I don't think it's necessary. Um, if a decision has been taken that conflicts with the patient's current wishes, I think you should have a, a process where there's a kind of debriefing where everybody gets together and talks about what just happened and what was done and how we can make it work better in the future um, and re-elicit the patient's choice to consider to continue with, uh, with the help of his family member. That said, if the person uh, doesn't want a family member, ask them if they want a friend or, or someone who can take that role. And if they want no one, then I just think you have to respect that, even though we might think it's not the best task.
0: Right. Um, Lisa, back to you, Um, the issue of what uh, Ellen has just said, and this is not disagreeing with it. this is just saying there are some circumstances uh, where the decision on the part of the person looks, in any way you look at it, to be a dangerous one for the individual or for people around them or something. How, what would you like to see done to deal with those situations? That is to say, to find a way to help so that the behaviour or whatever it is, is responded to appropriately without putting people at risk, but without necessarily um, squashing the autonomy of the person. Lisa? Um,
3: oh, uh, the, the, I've had a a case where a person was at risk, and uh, everybody, the family and myself and the psychiatrists, we were all aware of the need for the person to be admitted or to be uh, um, given some medication. But where the problem we had was that what we were seeing was not what the psychiatrists in the academic teaching hospital were, were seeing. And so what our barriers were, it was not necessarily not being able to get the, to identify what the problem was, it was getting the care. So it was um, a, a health care problem within the institution.
0: Right. Let me just switch over to Ellen with this one. Um, not an easy one either which is that taking meds at least for some people with schizophrenia is actually important Uh, you know the role of meds is always uh, Uh disputed but Uh in relation to certain types of schizophrenia uh, I'm no expert but it does seem to me that the evidence is fairly good now when we read of the terrible things that go on in the streets that is people with mental illnesses let me be brutal get shot to death because of their high-risk behaviors. Too often we hear, oh well, the individual didn't take their, they'd stop taking their medications. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter. But it does raise the question of to what, how to deal with the situation where somebody does go off the medication with uh, dangerous or even catastrophic consequences. Alan, tough question, how would you deal with it as a politician? It really is a tough
2: question. I, I find it a very, very difficult question. Um, I think someone should lose the the uh, the uh, ability to refuse treatment if they don't understand what the issues at stake are. If I say something like, uh, gosh, I would really love to be on this medication because it's helped me so much in the past, but if I take it, I'm convinced it's going to cause a nuclear explosion. That's not a competent choice, and, and the person should be given medication, or if they're imminently dangerous, I think that's justification for giving them medication. Um, but uh, there are people who don't want to take medication uh, for a variety of reasons. They don't like the side effects. They feel wounded by the idea that they have a mental illness and want to prove that they don't. That's, that's my situation. For 10 years, I tried to get off medication because I wanted to prove I wasn't really mentally ill, and now I'm on it consistently. I accept the need for it, and my life is going much, much better. Um, so I'm sort of sorry that I wasn't smarter sooner, but I am glad that I was given the scope to come to the decision in my own time in my own way. So it's a very complicated issue. We also have something here in America called outpatient commitment or assisted outpatient therapy where someone is kind of committed as required to take medication in the community, and if they don't take the medication, then they can be hospitalized on uh easier uh, criteria, at least for an evaluation. So that's happening. Well, I mean, m- actually, my institute, the Saxon Institute for Mental Health Law Policy and Ethics, picks a new t- topic each year, and our first year was mechanical restraints. This past year was psychotropic medicine in the law, and next is going to be criminalization of mental illness. And the, the idea that L.A. County Jail is the biggest mental hospital in the country is a scandal. It's just a tragedy. And I I gather you have some of that there, because Lisa, you're working in criminal justice. I just think it's so much better if we divert people away from the criminal process, like with mental health courts are given a choice of going to a mental health court and getting committed to treatment rather than put in jail.
0: Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end, but I think that's a very strong point to finish on, both of you, because you both agree, and that is this question of the criminalization of mental illness yeah. and how to avoid it right. and how, therefore, to deal with uh, the, all the issues that arise. Right. Um, that's going to get Uh, developed more as a problem that we're aware of simply because of aging, because dementia increases with aging, and dementia brings some of the kind of issues that we've been talking about. So um, on that, sadly, we close and I want to say, first of all, thank Uh you to our listeners, and secondly, thank you particularly to Professor Ellen Sachs and Dr. Lisa Dope for sharing with us all that you have shared with us, and your insights and your advice, and Whatever you're doing, please keep doing it because it's profoundly important. And both of you, um, in your different ways, as you make breakthroughs, please get in touch with me because I'd love to do another episode with you both um, talking about the ways forward that you're hewing in dealing with what I think is one of the most troublesome issues, mental health challenges health challenges and people challenges of our time so thank you very much indeed both of you now to our listeners in our next episode we'll be talking about gentle persuasive approaches program for professional caregivers uh, for family caregiving perspectives please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then